0: It's not like you get to the top and then it just drops straight down. You are going to see Amber, it's math. Yes. (laughs) They don't (laughs) do math.
1: (laughs) Is anybody listening?
2: Hello, and welcome to the Collier Democratic Roundup, the official podcast of the Collier County Democratic Party. My name is Jeff Spencer. I'm the vice chair of the party, and I want to thank everyone for clicking on. We have a great show for you today. We have our interview with Supervisor of Elections Jennifer Edwards, where we talk about what her staff has been doing to prepare for an election in a pandemic. She goes on to explain how vote-by-mail works and why it is easy, safe, and secure way to cast your ballot. And we also talk about how voters can stay informed about the process and be assured that they are properly registered with the supervisor elections for this next election. We also have our panel discussion where Amber, Linda, and I talk about news stories that caught our eye throughout the past week. This week we talk about a new model that combines all of the COVID numbers we're seeing into one ensemble model. We also look at how the reality of COVID-19 and the data that's coming out from all of the different states is ruining President Trump's talking points. And we discuss how the local media here in Collier County handles progressive topics and Democratic candidates during election times. But first let's go over some party info. The local party is doing everything we can to organize and prepare this election season to make sure that every single Democratic voter gets out to the polls and submits their ballot by Election Day. And our number one priority is getting everyone signed up for vote-by-mail. We don't really know what November will look like. Many experts are predicting that this virus will be with us for the foreseeable future. And that means that voting in November could be difficult to manage by poll workers and the supervisor's office. But it's also going to be risky to those members of our community who are most vulnerable. Vote-by-mail is the safest and easiest way to ensure your vote is counted. And we're doing a lot here locally in the party to reach out to Democrats and get them to sign up. We've mailed over 8,000 postcards to voters encouraging them to sign up. We've made over 9,000 phone calls to Democrats. We've paid for advertising on Facebook and Instagram, pointing them to the Supervisor of Elections website where they can sign up. And we're going to do more of this over the coming months to make sure that every Democrat signs up and is registered for vote by mail. This is really valuable work and I wanna take a moment to just thank all of our great volunteers who have put in so much time and effort to mail those postcards and make those phone calls. But I wanna stress that even this is not enough for us to win in November. We need every single Democrat and like-minded person in Collier County to step up and do just a little bit more for us to be able to win in November. We need more of your time, more of your support to help make a difference. Please, if you have any time, sign up to make phone calls to other Democrats. You can do that at our website, www.callyourdems.org, where you can sign up to become a volunteer. It's a very easy process. These are all virtual phone banks. It can be done from your computer, from your mobile device, so please consider doing that. And I know that right now it's a very difficult time economically for so many people. But if you are able to donate 5 or $10 a month to the local party, please do so. It goes a very long way towards us being able to reach voters. We have only 166 days left until this election. And we need everyone to do anything that they can to help us. I want to take a moment to recognize our candidates who are running for office this year, the local candidates. Uh, we have John Jenkins, who's running for County Commission District 1, Sarah McFadden in State House 106, Javier Estevez and Maureen Porras, both are running in State House 105, There's, that's a Democratic primary, and David Holden and Cindy Bagnier both are running for the Democratic nomination in U.S. House District 19, that's a Democratic primary. All of their information on all the candidates can be found on our website. Please check them out. Help them in any way that you can. We do have one event coming up that we want to make everyone aware of. The Collier County Democratic Party and the Blue Gator Initiative are putting on a virtual town hall for the two Democratic candidates vying for the nomination in U.S. House District 19. Information about that virtual town hall can be found on our website, www.collierdems.org. We also hope to have the audio version of that debate, that town hall, available on this podcast once it is completed. So that's all we have on this week's episode for Party News. Let's dive right into our interview with Supervisor of Elections, Jennifer Edwards. So on this week's podcast, we would like to welcome the Supervisor of Elections for Collier County, Ms. Jennifer Edwards. Supervisor Edwards, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure.
2: Yes. So um, as we all know, the last two months have been unprecedented with the COVID crisis. And I'm curious, uh, how has the crisis affected your office and your office's plans for the election this November?
1: Well, of course, when it all started in March, we were conducting a PPP the election. So we made a, we had to make a few changes through that. And uh, some of our election workers, of course, decided they did not want to work. And I totally understand that and appreciate that and respect that. And so we also had to move a few of our polling locations right before the election to uh, accommodate assisted living facilities. And we were very fortunate and very pleased with the locations that we were able to find nearby and they allowed us to use their space. And then moving forward, we of course closed our office and our staff's been working from home or rotating in the office. And during uh, about a month period, We did not open to the public, but our staff was there doing their work, answering the phone, answering emails, and people could of course register to vote online and call our office with questions and we responded to the emails. We also placed a box outside our office so that during that time, People were requesting mail ballots, so they could drop that mail ballot request into that box that was right outside our office door. So we did everything we could to accommodate our public, but at the same time keep our staff safe. And we're and looking forward, we're planning on doing some of those same things through the the August and November election processes.
2: We're seeing right now. Uh- you know, a concerted push by uh, voting advocates as well as the Democratic Party to prioritize vote by mail this year, given the fact that we don't know what the state of the virus will be uh, come November. And I'm just curious, um, what's your how's your office looking at how you may have to handle a potential larger share of the vote coming from vote by mail? Are you looking at the process of verifying signatures and curing ballots. What are you looking at to possibly adjust if the vote by mail ballots um, increase significantly?
1: Well, we began looking at that weeks ago and working with our vendors to ensure that we have enough supplies and products in place in order to meet the increase in vote by mail ballots, which we've already seen happening and it will continue to happen. On April the 17th, we mailed our notice of election to all our voters. We have approximately 211,000. So we mailed all of them a notice of election. And part of that mailing is a vote by mail request form. So those are the ones that people started returning. Uh, we They were delivered to them on Friday and Saturday. And They started bringing them back and mailing them back on that Monday and Tuesday. So since we already had uh, probably over about 25,000 requests for mail ballots, but since April 17th, when we did that mailing, we have already received over 35,000 additional requests. So we have over 60,000 requests for mail ballots now, and we anticipate that to, of course, continue to increase. So it's looking at our supplies, talking with our vendors, ensuring we have everything in place, and then we will also look at bringing in additional temporary staff to help with the processing. Because as everybody knows, we, do compare the signature on the outside of the envelope to the voter signature of record and all of that quality and security processing that we do will continue to be provided throughout the upcoming elections.
2: So I, I, I'm glad you brought up the process because, uh, you know, one of the common fears of, of voters when you talk to them about vote by mail is they worry about their vote being being counted. And I'm I'm Kind of curious if you could just take a moment to kind of go through the process of from when someone gets their vote by mail ballot and uh, fills out the ballot signs the envelope and mails it back in what does that ballot go through what are the steps that it goes through once it gets to your office
1: well and, and i'd also like to add early on that some of our voters are concerned about putting their ballot in the mail and now we have drop boxes at all nine of our early voting locations so they can drive their ballot to one of those locations and drop it off. Or they can always come to our office on exchange or go to the Orange Blossom Government Center to drop off their ballot. And once we get that ballot, and we have a great relationship with the United States Post Office. and sometimes they even deliver mail to us twice a day but they uh, deliver that uh, the mail to our operations center where we have a huge pitney bows mail sorter machine and those ballots that come in daily are in run through that mail machine and sorted. and when we sort it it also takes a picture of the signature on the back of the envelope so then our staff goes to their desk there's a software that brings up that image that was just taken of that signature and also brings up on the screen a picture of the voter's signature of record and those two are compared and if there's a question our staff touches one key and if it's a good match, no question, they touch another key. And then those ballots that were placed back in their trays when they have done their compar- signature comparisons, those mail trays, again, are emptied one at a time into the sorter. And it is programmed to outsource those questionable signatures. And that occurs, and those that are questionable are placed in the mail trays. And then, that same day, our staff will send out the cure letters. Either if we have the email uh, address for our voter, they'll send an email. And then we always send a hard copy also to our voters to tell them that they have the opportunity to cure Their signature on that envelope, and we send the affidavit along with the letter, (laughs) excuse me, for the voters to um, cure their ballot. And then for those that do not require the cure process, those ballots are placed in the mail trays and locked in cages. Every live ballot is locked in cages in our office. And we um, have special locks on those and only specific staff have, of course, the keys to those. And when on the day that we can begin opening those envelopes and tabulating, then those cages are opened and those trays are removed one at a time. And we have machines that are called extractors And the staff sits, it's like a console, desk console. And the staff sits at the console and they run those envelopes through the extractor. And it literally chews off the top and the side of the envelope and there are suction cups that open the envelope and staff reaches in and they remove the ballot and the secrecy sleeve. And that goes in one direction and the envelope goes in another and that's when the confidentiality of the ballot is definitely secured and because the ballots are never ma- uh, matched to the to the signature on the envelope again those are totally separate
2: okay so um and uh to be clear i mean when you go through this process when do you actually start the counting, the tabulation process? I think most people think that you guys start counting this immediately once they receive their ballot, Um, but that's not the case, is it?
1: No, it's not. The law allows us uh, X number of days to begin tabulating, and we begin on that first day. We have to actually go to the canvassing board, which every voting jurisdiction has, And we asked for their approval to begin opening and tabulating. And once we, as I said, remove that ballot from the envelopes, and those are separated forever, the ballots are flattened and they go back in mail trays. And that day we began tabulating. Our IT department has high-speed scanners that tabulate the mail ballots. And they tabulate every day. So we keep up with what we have, but it can be as many as 22 to 28 days before election day. I don't have the exact number on top of my head right now, but uh, because we have, the law changed and allows us to start even earlier for this election cycle than we have in the past. So when people say, well, I don't like to vote by mail because They don't count those anyway. We do. We count those before we count anything else. Right. Also, we're required by 7.30 on election night, we're required to post to our website and to send to the Florida Division of Elections the results of early voting and the results of mail voting.
2: Roughly how many people last election you said you had a major increase in uh, in vote by mail requests here recently i'm just curious how many people voted by mail out of the 200 roughly 200,000 registered voters in the last presidential election
1: well the last presidential election was 2016 and i'm looking at my stat sheet now so 32% of the voters that voted in the 2016 general election voted by mail. So, that was about 60,000 voters voted by mail in the last general election. Now, in the primary election, which is the one coming up in August, we had about 35,000 voters vote by mail.
2: Has there been any... uh... You know, with with the COVID crisis, there's been a lot of discussion about how to administer elections. Have you you seen anything happening at the state level that adjusts how people can register to vote or how they can get their vote-by-mail ballots or register for those? Are there any changes that are being brought about so that uh, people can do that a little easier and less in person?
1: Well, we know nothing new. But, you know, Florida has implemented for the last few years registration online. And so the voters can go to the Florida Division of Elections or they can go to our website, callyourvotes.com, and register online.
2: Yeah, and we will put a, a, some notes in our show notes about where they can go to register anybody who listens who, who would like to register. Okay. Um can go there
1: and and of course they can go by our office or they can they can go online and they can print those forms and complete them and mail them to our office or drop them off or drop them off at any government center as you know the tax collector registers people to vote when they get their driver's license or renew their driver's license and uh, you can drop you can drop your voter registration off there or go there to update when someone moves they're required to update their driver's license and that's very important because we get that information you know when people move they don't think oh my goodness I've got to go tell the elections office I moved and it's our we work as hard as we can to keep up with all those moves and so we can be sure to get the voter the correct ballot Style because the style is determined by where you live.
2: Are you expecting? I'm. I'm curious in your opinion on turnout. Um, you know, you're seeing a, a big increase, and I think Collier County does a, f- a fairly good job of of you know advocating for vote by mail. And we have so many so many of our population that uh, are seasonal and 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 utilize that vote by mail uh, option. Um, but I'm just curious if you feel like. Uh, Turnout will be affected by uh, the crisis. I mean, did we see a an effect at the PPE or the PPP?
1: No, but we really didn't. We had anticipated a forty percent turnout because primaries have low turnout, and we had anticipated about a forty percent turnout in the PPP, and we had a thirty nine percent turnout. So we were pleased with that and looking forward for the August primary, it will be a low turnout. When we had our primary in 2016, the last presidential election year, the August primary only had a 32% turnout. So it's usually in the 30s. And that's sad because the August primary is all about our local candidates too. This year we have county commission, we have school board, we have all of our constitutional officers that are up for reelection.
2: Yeah, and and with with races like the school board, often the uh, the decision is made at the primary election, you know, in its entirety. It doesn't even move on to the the general election right. often.
1: Right. Right. That's why it's so important for us in our office to get the word out to remind people you're going to vote local. Please, please vote for our local candidates and. So your vote counts.
2: The last thing I want to ask you about is um, there was a recent article uh, detailing some voters who were had been marked inactive and the uh, move and to kind of remove inactive voters or to mark voters inactive in a USA Today article, I believe. Uh, Could you go over the process of how voters are marked inactive and how they can rectify the situation?
1: We are required in odd numbered years to do what is called list maintenance in Florida election law. And what that means is we do mailings to our voters. What we do, we begin in Collier with identifying who hasn't voted in the last two years. And we mail them a letter asking them to verify their address and that they're one of our voters. And when we do that mailing, it's a due process. The clock starts, they have 30 days to respond back to us. And when we don't hear back from our voters, either by phone or, or filling out the, the form and sending it back to us, then we do another mailing. And that one's called a final notice. And it again provides some information. Ask them to get in touch with us. Send us back. Let us know you're our voter. And the, again, the clock starts thirty days. At the end of that thirty days, if we have not heard back from that voter, that voter becomes inactive. Now there are two terms in Florida election law: inactive and ineligible. Inactive is simply that the voter has not been actively participating in the process and they are still though a registered voter in our county so if they walk into a polling location on election day or during early voting they can vote a regular ballot or if they call us or email us it activates them again and then The ineligible ones, that doesn't occur for like another six to eight years of mailings to the inactive voters. So ineligible means you you are no longer eligible to vote, and you will have to register again to be eligible to vote. But the inactive voter stays inactive for a number of years, and all they have to do is show up to vote or contact us by phone or email, and it automatically activates them. Now, what a voter can do, and I recommend uh, this strongly, is we have we have a an area on our website that says, what's my status? So the voter can go to callyourvotes.com and determine their status. And if they click through that, they'll activate themselves.
2: There is one additional uh, effect of becoming inactive. Uh, it is true that The supervisor of elections, your office doesn't send out any notices to the inactive voters, correct?
1: That's correct. We do not mail to inactive voters because we don't know where they are. We have sent them mail and they have not responded. So I don't send them additional mail.
2: And is that how other counties handle the process?
1: I don't know. I know through that article and those interviews we did with the reporters, We were told that some counties do what we do and some counties do not. So uh, counties have an opportunity to interpret the law and do the process the way we think is the best for our counties. And this is what we do in Collier County.
2: Well, Jennifer, that is uh, all I have uh, for you. I thank you very much for coming on. It was a pleasure, and uh, I hope to have you on here again soon. Oh,
1: I look forward to it. I, I like to share information and encourage people to register to vote, also to vote once they're a registered voter. It's so important, and we've got this August primary coming up and it's going to be here soon. We begin mailing ballots in July. So get registered to vote.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. So we're going to go ahead and take a quick break, and we'll be back with our panel discussion. Stick around.
3: If you guys are interested in hearing more about what's going on with the local Democratic Party, the Florida Democratic Party, local candidates, events, when they are possible again, and local news, there are a number of ways you can hear from us. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or just check in at our website for all the local Democratic Party info. You can find all of these signups on our website at www.collierdems.org. That's www.callyourdems.org. Thank you for all your support.
2: On this week's discussion, we look at COVID models and ensemble model that combines multiple models into one. We look at how reality is undermining President Trump's talking points. And lastly, uh, we discuss the local media and how it affects politics in Collier County. I want to welcome Amber and Linda to the show. Hello, Amber. Hello, Jeff. And hello, Linda. Hiya. So, Amber, why don't you go ahead and start us off and we'll look at uh, this uh, NPR article about this new uh, ensemble model.
0: Yeah, I found this. I found this article interesting about how to make sense of all the COVID projections. Which obviously, the last two months, there's projections coming from all over the world and all different, giving all different information. Um, and this one discusses a new model called an ensemble model that was put together by a biostatistician at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Basically, it's taking all the different models that different researchers are doing and you know each model is putting in their own parameters and he's taking them and combining them into one projection and what and they've been doing this for a while and what they've started to notice is that the the models are starting to um, become more similar and they're starting to converge to the ensemble model which obviously shows that the models are getting a little bit more accurate in their projections. Um, so I found that interesting and also reminded me, all of us Floridians here are used to the every year hurricane models and we know how they, they start off just all over the place. And just as with hurricane models, as time gets closer, to the event you get obviously more information about the weather and and things get more accurate and it's pretty much the same thing that's going on here with these models and being able to, um, to put in more accurate information so and of course they have to keep adjusting these as they learn more and one thing that it's kind of a negative Part is that um, they're going to be requiring that the models are going to have to do some adjusting in the near future because if they assumed that we had longer stay at home orders, then they would show us a lower rate of infection. Well, as that stuff starts to peel away, they're going to be adjusting these models to show more. Um, but I just thought that was interesting taking the science of all this, all the models that we've been hearing over the last few months and how we can kind of use those to get a really accurate projection of where things are headed, which by the way, the models right now, the ensemble projection is showing that by the beginning of June, the cumulative death toll in the U S will reach 110,000. So.
2: Yeah. I want to, I think it's important that everyone not forget where we are right now uh, and not ignore those larger numbers and get caught up in, whether the models are right or wrong. You know, all through February, the president said things like this was a hoax, said that one day it would magically disappear. He said that we have 15 cases and very quickly it'll be down to zero. Uh, And then in March, the president stood in the Rose Garden, rattled off projections from the University of Washington, a model that's in this ensemble model that predicted a hundred thousand deaths and then it was reported that that was one of the big reasons for the White House suggesting that we have enhanced social distancing measures and lockdowns in the first place and now the president is encouraging everyone to open back up and on Monday he stood in that same rose garden and said that the United States rose to the challenge and we prevailed and I think people need to remember where we are right now. These numbers are becoming normalized. These num- the numbers of deaths are becoming normalized. And just six weeks ago, the thought of 100,000 deaths led Republican officials across the country to, to back social distancing measures and closing down states. And now we're saying, let's open back up while we approach the numbers that scared us into the social distancing in the first place.
3: I think what's also happening in the White House and what we don't necessarily see is a president who has empathy for anybody that has lost someone or knows someone that has died. That number, 100,000, those are people and that's not what we see. But I think also when the American public is asked, I know that they have dropped some polling numbers. A lot of the American public still does want to shelter in place they still do see those numbers the people that we hear from are republican-led mouthpieces and including president trump from his briefings are saying nope everything's fine yes that is a number but somehow that number isn't important and i feel that the american people still understand that this is still serious
0: yeah everything i've seen the majority of people are support stay-at-home orders and social distancing to continue it's just there's this loud minority which is getting all of the attention
2: i think the other part of the problem is that we have we really have two crises going on you have the crisis the health crisis which we are all aware of the covid crisis but then you also have the economic crisis which is caused by the the health crisis but it's a whole nother entity that is that is affecting people and there's, there's some great articles in the New York Times and the Atlantic. They discuss the disparity in region with the of COVID crisis. When you think about Republicans' responses versus Democrats' responses to the crisis, in some respects, Republicans, there are more of them that represent areas that have very little experience with the covid crisis it's simply something that's happening from afar and but they do feel the economic crisis they do feel the economic sting of the lockdowns and the reason why the republican narrative of opening back up is is coming to the top is because more people are experiencing the economic pinch than they are the healthcare pinch i think i think i agree with you that people want to be consistent with social distancing and want to continue social distancing. But I also think that they also feel the economic burden that's coming on and it's an easier message.
0: What drives me insane though is that you you have two people who I feel kind of, you have the people who want businesses to reopen which everybody understands that and everybody feels that But it seems like a lot of those people are the same people that are saying, I will not wear a mask like this is that's going against my freedoms to wear a mask. But it should be if you want us to reopen, the more people that would wear masks in businesses in public, that would allow businesses to slowly reopen in a much safer manner. But people are i don't understand how you can be of those two mindsets if you want us to reopen how are you not also actively promoting all of the safety measures that we could have
2: that is a great i'm going to interject right there that's a great segue into the next topic let's go ahead and move on to uh, linda's topic which talks about how the covid crisis is undermining trump's message of opening back up so linda do you want to go over real quick what you were looking at on that article?
3: Sure, of course. So CNN published this article and it was very interesting to me. So I'm gonna sum it up for you guys. So as far as we know, there's a couple cases in the White House and we know that the West Wing is a pretty crowded place. So I don't think it takes a great leap to think that potentially more cases of COVID will be seen in the White House. So the article noticed that this could potentially undermine Trump's narrative, which is to open the country and something that he likes to say a lot and that testing is not important. However, some of the sentient article points, and these are direct messages, uh, people who obviously are relaying this to the reporter anonymously, but they have noted that Trump is concerned that this will, in fact, undercut his message. He keeps on saying that in the White House. Um, he is asked why his valet was not equipped with a mask, even though there have been no orders to do so. Just recently, the White House started asking people to come in with masks. He has indicated that he does not want to be around anyone who has not been tested. Also, the White House is undergoing currently, and I don't know how long they've been doing this, Um, an aggressive testing and contact tracing policy. I think it's been ramped up more since these two folks became positive, Um, which is of course, as we all know, a a drastic difference um, than what the White House has been espousing for the country and any single one of his rants, Twitter rants or uh, press conferences. So uh, I think a case can be made of, well, if this is something that you're doing then why isn't it what you want for our country? Especially if you want us to take the risk to reopen. And mind you, the article also noted that um, a couple of officials that have been working closely in the White House have self-quarantined. This includes the CDC director, Dr. Redfield, the FDA commissioner, Dr. Hahn, and Dr. Fauci. Um, Stephen Miller, which is the husband of Pence's aide, that was that has been covid positive he has chosen not to return back to the white house of his own volition but unfortunately pence and trump who have decided not to quarantine themselves nor to wear any protective covering on their faces although they they have been testing themselves multiple times a day
2: yeah and so you know there's two things in that and one you hit on which is the the hypocrisy of, of standing in front of the American people and saying that you need to get out to work when we don't have a testing protocol or a contact tracing protocol that will uh, protect you while you are demanding that within your own workplace that both of those are in place to protect you but you don't think that Americans should be protected equally is stark. It, it you know You don't see that. Usually presidents and Politicians are very keen to the image that you're projecting. Uh, but as we've seen with this president, he doesn't seem to uh, play by any type of normal rules. But the second point is that I really think this gets to the heart of what Republicans are trying to paint this crisis in, um, which is that it's a false choice. They're, they're presenting this, this choice of that it's either – full-scale lockdown with no economic activity or work through the pandemic and endure the repercussions. And what is so frustrating about that is that the whole reason why we started social distancing and lockdowns in the first place was in part to bend the curve, but largely largely to give the government time to ramp up testing, contact tracing, and PPE, personal protective equipment, to allow us to open back up and allow Americans to go back out into the economy with the confidence that their local communities, their local healthcare systems, their local governments have the resources and the programs in place to be able to mitigate any new cases that may come up. So. Bend the curve, have everything set up so that when you open the economy back up, any new outbreaks that occur in your community can be quickly identified and handled and contained so that you mitigate the spread. But we've taken the last two months and done nothing. We, we've we literally, we the testing is nowhere near where it needs to be. We have no semblance of contact tracing going on pretty much anywhere. Some of the more liberal states like Maine and New York and Washington have have some contact tracing programs in, but none of the red states, and certainly not here in Florida. The Tampa Bay Times had a, an article earlier this week where the headline was basically that even elected officials in the state government are frustrated with the lack of contact tracing programs. So it, When you have the president out there stating all of these, you know, we're getting back to work, we're going to have, we're going to get this economy revving again, I don't see how that's possible if the American people do not have the confidence that when they go back out into the economy, that they're not going to get the virus and have to go into the hospital. And if you don't have the testing and the contact tracing there to make them feel confident, I don't see how the talking points of, the economy is going to get back roaring again is actually going to come to fruition.
0: I honestly think that it may even go beyond just being solely focused on getting the economy reopened, that they're ignoring this. Because like you kind of pointed out, if you want the economy to reopen, you should be having these social distancing measures in place to keep as few infections out there. And you should be having testing just everywhere so that that you can be confident that what what is open is safe. And that would by far get our economy reopened faster. In fact, if we had had it in the beginning, we wouldn't have had to shut down to the degree that we did. But I honestly think that, I think he's more concerned about reelection. I think that's, if you look at all the decisions that have been made, I think a lot of them can be looked through the lens of re-election and how that looks. And there was a a specific quote that he had a few weeks ago when talking about testing. And essentially, he didn't want to do more testing because the more testing we do, the numbers look worse and the numbers look worse for him, which is just completely asinine in trying to control this situation. But I honestly don't think that's a main objective. I mean, I think that's maybe one of the objectives, but I think re-election is maybe a bigger objective for him. I, I would agree with that. I
3: Well, also, you. I think what we're doing and what we do every day is to try and find the psychological reason as to why this doesn't make sense to him. So when we read an article like this and we say, but this is what he's doing in his own house yeah and it's you good think, for well, him why mm-hmm. exactly and so that just even throws any of our theories out the window cuz we fundamentally know he understands, he understands. That It's a good yeah. idea it's good for yes. him and it's a good idea for him to do it yes yes and i don't know how the average republican can close their eyes at night knowing this
2: i think also that it's he has a simplistic view of politics and he the opportunity that he missed in in this crisis or at least for for his own reelection his whole mindset is that the only way that he could win reelection was with a booming strong economy he had built his entire campaign around the notion that the stock market was at record highs the unemployment rate was at record lows and that he could ride the coattails of the economic quote success now there was a lot of other metrics that show that that success wasn't as as um, fully felt across the American workforce. But that was his plan. And COVID has dramatically changed that. But the, the irony of the situation is, is if you look at governors across this country and their handling, including Republican governors, you look at Mike DeWine in Ohio, I mean, his approval numbers are off the charts. They're in like the 80s to 90s, including Democrats who are saying that they approve of his handling of the crisis in Ohio as a Republican. Democrats say that they approve of that by 90 percent. If the president had simply handled this like a normal functioning adult, recognized the threat and, and listened to the experts that are there, and just did what they said that he should do, he would have, even in this polarized time, you would imagine he would have seen a bump. He, we saw that he got a bump early while doing nothing. He got a bump of 10 points. If he had done anything close to normal, he would have had a massive bump in approval rating, and he would be much stronger in a much stronger place for re-election right now. Now that may have that may change have changed later in the year depending on how the crisis unfolds, but it's just a very simplistic view of his re-election chances to suggest that he thinks he needs to get the economy going. That's setting aside the fact that I agree completely with Amber, which is to suggest that the economy is going to somehow come back without social distancing measures that make people feel comfortable is is a myth. It's a fallacy. It's not going to happen. So to me, he's missing the boat politically completely. And I think he's, if he is to get reelected, which is a scary thought, but if he is to get reelected, it's going to be strictly on the backs of, of partisanship. And, and in this belief that if he can make people believe that I just cannot vote for a Democrat, not because of his actual performance of anything. All right, so I'm, I I will go to the last topic, uh, my topic on uh, the local news. Um, recently, uh, there was a debate, and if you're a Democrat listening to this podcast, I'm sure you didn't hear about it because no Democrats were invited to it. Wink News put on a, a virtual debate uh, with eight Republican candidates for the U.S. House District 19. That's Francis Rooney's seat for the U.S. House uh, that is up in November. So Francis Rooney decided to step down. Uh, It is not running again. So the Republicans have a primary and Wink News decided to have a debate. And the interesting thing is, or the confusing thing is, is that they advertised this debate as a debate of all the candidates and they said specifically that that one of these candidates would replace Francis Rooney as the next U.S. House member. And we found word at the Collier County Democratic Party. We found uh, found out about this. We have two candidates running uh, in a primary for that seat, David Holden and Cindy Bannier. Um, and neither of them were invited to that debate. Uh, and we uh, formed a letter and sent it to Wink News uh, along with the Lee County Democratic Party and both of the candidates, asking them why they didn't inform uh, the, the local Democratic parties uh, and why they haven't uh, reached out to us to have a Democratic version of this debate. Now, in response to our letter, they did come back and say that they would have a virtual debate of the Democratic candidates. But what I want to talk about with this is that is the local news here in Collier County doesn't cover progressive topics uh, or candidates. It's one of the reasons why we started the podcast is because the you know, we have to be able to get the alternative viewpoint out. There are 52,000 registered Democrats in Collier County.
0: Yeah. I think there's a lot more than hearing. people realize, honestly.
2: A lot more. And uh, people need to to hear the alternative view. And that's one of the problems with with promoting a, a, a debate as – somehow being the end all of all the candidates, is that those candidates stood up, for instance, in this debate. And in this case, they promoted ideas that are contradictory to the health experts in terms of opening up. And that was presented as here are the candidates representing who are vying to represent Southwest Florida, and every single one of them articulated a line of thinking that has been promoted by President Trump and Republican leaders at the national level, which is this argument that we need to open up, that that the testing and all of that is fine, and we don't need any, any more contact tracing. We don't need anything like that. Opening up is the first priority. We should have done it a long time ago. And it gives this impression to the viewer, the listener, the reader, depending on the right. Uh, medium that they 're consuming the information from it gives the impression that this is the norm this is the this is how everyone views things, but we do have fifty two thousand residents that deserve to have their opinions and their viewpoints heard and to have their representatives respond to their viewpoints. And so if you never have, I mean, one of the things that was so disheartening in the 2018 midterm election was Francis Rooney chose to never have a debate.
0: Right.
2: He, never, he just refused to have a debate with the Democratic candidate because he knew that by standing up next to the Democratic candidate, he would have to answer questions on his record and what he did, and voters would have to hear and he would have to answer for things that he never gets asked by our local media.
3: Well, here, here. And I agree with you. And I think that I know that as a Democrat in this county, predominantly red county, I feel that we've always been shy or or we like to hide our beliefs, hide in plain sight, if you will, because we know that there's an overpowering uh, uh, red wave that is ready to sweep over us whenever we say anything. Um, but I think also you brought this issue about what's happening to us locally. And I think oftentimes that, that extends to countrywide and that somehow our message always gets lost. And I don't, I don't know how to combat that. I mean, I feel like as, as you, as I sit here and you tell me this and, and I wasn't fully aware, um, that, that Francis Rooney has refused to engage in any type of. Of public debate with anyone that disagrees with him, I find that even more reprehensible, and I am sitting here silently seething at this. And then I think, well, what are we going to do? And why? Maybe the answer is us not being as polite.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, Linda, I, I you know we talked about this on the last podcast. Amber brought it up when the difference between Republicans and Democrats and how we like to conduct ourselves in you know, in campaigns. And I agree. I think we should be less polite. Uh, I don't think we should be rude, but I don't think we should, you know, accept bad answers, bad faith arguments, you know, because uh, basically, I mean, yeah, like I said, did Rooney didn't, didn't show up to a debate, would not debate last year. And I'm honestly worried that whoever wins this Republican primary, that they're going to avoid a debate with the democratic nominee as well i'm actually very worried about that i i've never
0: been if if nobody ever calls them out on it i'm sure they were to some extent but if if i like linda said i had never heard that so if that is not known to the public and there's not any sort of outcry then why what's in it it's in their advantage it's in their interest to not do it and they know that so it's going to take some sort of an outcry To make that happen, I would imagine. I think that um, everybody, anyone who is listening to this podcast who has similar views and feels like their voice is not heard and and knows others who are like-minded should uh, share this. Make sure you share this with people, your friends in this county so that we can have a voice together.
2: So I think that's All we have for today, we've covered everything in great detail. Thank you, Amber, for coming on. And thank you, Linda, for coming on as well.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: That's our show. I want to thank Jennifer Edwards for coming on. A big thank you to all of our volunteers who are out there working hard to sign up people on Vote by Mail. A very special shout-out to Agent 13 for our theme song. Please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and anywhere else that you listen to your podcast check us out on facebook instagram and twitter hope everyone's staying safe out there and until next time so long